There is a saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. What this conveys is the idea that when faced with uh, great enough danger, namely death, that everyone will call upon the name of the Lord in the end. Uh, psalm 91 was once coined, I'm not sure by who, but was coined the soldier's psalm, primarily because uh, you will see that it describes God's promises to overcome sickness, war, uh, and death. We could easily imagine how applicable this might be for a soldier, or how encouraging it might be uh, for someone, perhaps, uh, as we've seen in the news in Ukraine's trench warfare, again, soldiers being cold and sick and tired, uh, and this being a readily available encouragement. Moreover, this psalm, uh, I think, has also earned the reputation among soldiers for deeper reasons, or at least I hope so. As one of my former chaplains said it, war is most certainly spiritual business. Think of it, the most sacred of spiritual experiences often include the following, the proximity to death, the service of a larger purpose, and the sacrifice of self for another. All of these are accentuated in combat. The encouragement of this psalm then starts to take a deeper meaning for the soldier's life beyond just the sickness, war, and death that may be in front of them. Because again, as we're about to read, this is poetry. It's a clever way to impress upon our minds uh, a psalm with a title like the soldier's psalm. And I enjoy inviting people to Look at scriptures from the perspective of those I serve. But the poetry presented here goes far beyond war in this life. And the truth conveyed in this psalm is applicable to everyone. This psalm sings about how God wants to relate to us from our present struggles and into eternity. So please turn with me to Psalm 91 uh, as I read. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but none will come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall befall you, no plague shall come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, declares the Lord, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. 
Like all scripture, context is very important. Uh, Psalms 90 to 92 are actually all, all three are closely related to each other. See, first they introduce uh, the fourth book of the Psalms. We don't know all the reasons why the Psalms were organized into five books. Uh, but there is evidence that the fourth and fifth books were organized in particular for Israelites in the post-exile period. You see, the earthly kingdom of Israel did not lead to the Messiah the way many Israelites might have thought. It was destroyed, the people were scattered, and they were left wondering what the future held. The entirety of the Old Testament's call to faith in God remained, and it still remains today, but it seemed to lose some substance with the loss of the temple uh, and the nation of Israel as they knew it. So Psalm 90 begins with a sober reminder of God's power. It references creation, uh, perhaps the flood, and more. And as we sung in our God in ages past, it says, Before the hills in order stood, a thousand ages are in your sight. And at the center of Psalm 90, in that song, Psalm 90 reads, So teach us to number our days. It's actually attributed to Moses, uh, and it's full of humility and also a request for blessing once again. Again, one more line from Psalm 90. It reads, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. So Psalm 91, then, is the answer to that request. Again, it's God confirming uh, His promises for everyone and for eternity. I believe it's also important to consider uh, the history, the present, and the future all together with this psalm. We're all no doubt influenced by uh, the individuality of our culture, and for all its benefits, we sometimes lose sight of the community, let alone the community of saints that we share in Scripture. So when we read, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, there's an opportunity for us to reflect on the Israelites or what Moses may have thought of with the temple or the tabernacle, rather. And when we read, he who dwells will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Again, there's an opportunity for us to reflect and join with those who thought about the temple mount. In recalling the tabernacle and temple, we recall the long-standing sacrifices, the long-suffered repentance, and the long-awaited covenant from Genesis to Joshua to Kings. Because who could really dwell in the shelter of the Most High? This could also be translated, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. The Holy of Holies, as it were. And even the high priests were only permitted in this area for a certain amount of time each year due to its holiness. They tied bells around the ankles of the priests for fear that God would strike them dead if they did not enter without, with humility. In the end, no one was truly worthy of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. They were all long awaiting someone who was worthy, which is what this psalm points to. Someone who could dwell in the Lord's house forever and on our behalf so that we might be near him. Psalm 73 reads, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. 
The nearness of God is our only good in this psalm. So what did God do? But he came as Christ incarnate. So in light of this, as people of God across all generations, we can join the psalmist, actually as he switches to the first person in most translations, we can join the psalmist in a, in a personal declaration and confession that I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Taking a look at another psalm uh, for a depiction of actually what this does not look like, we can turn to Psalm 32. It reads, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as but by the heat of summer. But, the psalmist continues, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the great rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me, and you preserve me from trouble. So Psalm 91, then, uh, you can hear the approach of humility that the psalmist in Psalm 32 did not initially have. And as we continue to read Psalm 91, you will see the psalmist again does not try to cover their own sin, but allows Christ to cover their sin instead. It reads, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes noonday. There are countless more Old Testament references, uh, perhaps to the Ark of the Covenant or... Personifications of God as a bird covering us with his wings. But in the string of verses, what I want to call to attention really is just that God's promises are greater than the greatest enemies, sicknesses, or trials and tribulations we may come across. That again, God covers us both day and night, and his cover, his uh, protection extends all the way to Judgment Day. Because the psalm continues in even more spiritual sense when we read, A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. This is both uh, an awesome and awful image as we kind of transition in the psalm to uh, a, a perspective of judgment. And it caused me to, to think about the balance in Scripture concerning fear. So there's so many commands in Scripture uh, to fear not. Fear not, I am your shield, Abram. Fear not, for I am with you. And be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And yet there are also many commands in which God encourages us, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And fear the Lord who is the beginning of wisdom. It's, it's a paradox 
that I believe God answered in part with Israel uh, through his perfect balance of justice and mercy in their history, through his balance of holiness and steadfast love. But after all those centuries, uh, he finally answered that paradox fully by revealing himself as Jesus Christ. Jesus lived that perfect life and died in our place to uphold justice and mercy together and to bring us holiness and steadfast love together. I, I didn't note it here, but I, this morning it actually caused me to think of uh, the sermon from last week as well. We consider who of all people is worthy to dwell, who of all people is also capable of declaring judgment day and doing so in a perfectly loving manner. And I recall my father sharing that same idea about who could preach on hell better than anyone but Jesus. So again, I think how this psalm, and we see this, these images of judgment, uh, that we need to look to Christ again uh, to understand them. So in verses 9 and 10, the psalm repeats uh, the introduction to a degree, uh, the wisdom in saying, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall befall you. No plague come near your tent. I didn't have time to review the Hebrew, uh, but I believe there's a balance here again between the individual reader, the individual psalmist, and the community again. See, when it reads, no evil shall befall you, uh, that, that does sound speaking to us as the individual. But it also reads, no plague shall come near your tent. And again, I just think of the imagery that the psalmist had in mind here of the tabernacle, the community at large, the, the family and the nation that God is protecting them from. So by way of transition uh, a bit to the new, more to the New Testament explicitly, uh, just as this psalm confesses the Messiah, uh, for those who at the time were, were most likely reading it post-exile. So Peter confesses Christ in Philippi to the church and to us today. Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is in this light, I think, we can read, No plague shall, shall befall you. Uh, and no plague will come near your tent. Nothing will prevail against the Lord's history of Israel, just as nothing will prevail against Christ and the church. The psalmist then continues uh, in verses 11 to 13, declaring this salvation in an even more miraculous manner. It reads, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. 
The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Again, I ask you to consider in our call to worship how the Lord is our right-hand man. He casts a shadow on our right side both day and night. And this imagery is applicable in a very real sense uh, from my perspective as a soldier when I think of that Psalm 121 being written by David. But again, it was applicable in an internal sense as well. And that is the direction these verses take us yet again. If we are to learn a lesson, however, uh, from Peter again regarding this next verses from 11 to 13, uh, we can go to the New Testament again where, where we can be taught uh, by Jesus not to go astray with these verses. See, Satan has been known from the beginning to twist God's word uh, from Genesis 3, and he does so again here in Psalm 91. When Jesus was led into the wilderness, uh, we find in both gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke, uh, he was tempted by Satan. And in his second temptation from Matthew, it reads, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what a clear message as this psalm progresses uh, in, its, in its meaning and application. What a clear message to not misuse God's word. Of all the people who could claim the power of this psalm to its fullest, surely it was Jesus. But he did not come to flippantly demonstrate his power as Satan tempted him. Again, God's poetry here uh, goes far beyond war, and the truth conveyed applies to everyone. Jesus ensured by fulfilling this and refraining from temptation to use God's word for anything less than that which is eternal. In doing so, he would not trade his relationship with God uh, with God's word for anything. He would not trade his relationship with God the Father or the Holy Spirit for anything in this tangible world. Nor would he trade the chance to use Scripture for his own gain, apart from the Father and the Spirit. And in doing so, I think this imagery we see it pointing to Christ more and more, as he was the one who trampled the lion and the adder. Ultimately, he crushed the serpent's head at the cross. So we come to the final verses, the words of God himself. As one scholar put it very well, it is our ground of confidence that the last word spoken is not by us here. The psalmist says, Because he holds fast to me in love, declares the Lord, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Here we have an oracle of salvation, the psalmist speaking what God is speaking directly to him. And we see eight blessings, there's an eightfold blessing from God here, of deliverance, 
protection, presence, rescuing, satisfaction, and salvation. So lest we forget so quickly again, God loved us first. But so long as we love him in return, by calling upon his name as the psalmist encourages us, he will give us all these blessings forevermore. It is all dependent upon us looking to Christ and looking to God for our salvation, not our own power. God declared this as early as Deuteronomy 7 when he said, It is not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping you an oath that he swore to your fathers. And he again declares something similar to us in 1 Peter verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that is the mercy that extends to all of the church today. It's perhaps no surprise then that Psalm 92, uh, the next psalm, is a response of praise. Just to briefly introduce that one. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. So again, God's promises are so great that even in the harshest of circumstances and realities in this life, even in the face of death, uh, God is faithful. And we ought to be compelled uh, to praise him in response. So in light of that, uh, let us please pray together and then sing about how God wants us to both dwell with him in our present struggles, uh, but more importantly, dwell with him uh, into our eternal salvation. Dear Lord, uh, thank you for this word that you've given us today. Thank you for all the psalms uh, that you have inspired uh, and provided and, and kept uh, and protected uh, to us this very day. Lord, just thank you for the rich history that you have been sovereign over each and every detail throughout Israel and to the church to us today. Lord, I just pray that uh, we would reflect on these words, uh, that we would uh, find deep meaning in them, that we would not uh, claim them as our own, that we would not look to ourselves for our own salvation, that we would consider no, no theology of glory in ourselves, but look to the cross, uh, look to how this psalm speaks of your power and your salvation of us, and that all we need to do is accept that. And so, Lord, please uh, let this remainder of this worship be an offer, uh, a response, uh, and an acceptance of your word here today. I pray these things in your name. Amen.